You're listening to the Irish Times Worldview Podcast. Welcome to Worldview from the Irish Times. I'm Dennis Staunton. Today, as the International Boycott, Divestment and Sanctions, or BDS, movement against Israel gains strength, we'll ask how worried Israel ought to be. But we begin in the United States, where former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton and former Florida Governor Jeb Bush both launched their campaigns for the presidency in the past few days. Hillary Clinton is the runaway favourite to win the Democratic nomination, and Jeb Bush is the bookie's favourite to be the Republican nominee, even if the polls are a bit less clear. So what do their launches tell us about the shape of the race to come? Who could snatch the crown from Jeb or Hillary? And how eager are Americans to have their choice reduced to members of the two families who've held the presidency for 20 out of the past 26 years? To discuss this, I'm joined from Miami by our correspondent Simon Carswell and here in studio by the Irish Times foreign policy editor Patrick Smith. Simon, these two launches by Hillary Clinton in New York and Jeb Bush in Miami, what were they like? Um, they were quite different. Uh, I thought the locations of both were very interesting, very symbolic. Uh, Hillary Clinton launched uh, her campaign in uh, Franklin D. Roosevelt for Freedoms Park, which evokes the famous speech that the 32nd president gave in 1941 about the four freedoms, freedom of speech, freedom to worship, freedom from fear, freedom from want. And she said a lot of those same um, goals exist today. And she very much pitched her presidential campaign message at uh, fixing and correcting the gap between the richest Americans and everyone else. Um, Really, it was a very strong economic message, although she had a couple of digs at the Republicans as well. Very, very little on foreign policy, which might seem strange, given that she was President Obama's first Secretary of State and held that role for four years. But clearly, uh, President Obama is very unpopular, particularly because of his handling of foreign policy, so she's not going to mention that. Jeb Bush's campaign launch in Miami uh, on Monday was very interesting. It was, uh, I would say, electrifying, very much um, uh, in contrast to his his six-month campaign uh, where he was stumbling over answers to questions, notably on his brother's war record. He failed to really um, failed to really electrify anyone during the campaign. The last six months, his questions and answers sessions seemed very wonkish, seemed very much uh, very dry, really struggling to answer some questions and showing the rustiness of someone who hasn't run for public office in 13 years. Um, so, again, very similar messages. Jeb Bush saying as well that uh, this, his, whole, his whole theme is the right to rise, addressing income inequality. And also Jeb Bush, very notably, his um, campaign launch had a very Hispanic theme, uh, ethnic flavor, lots of speeches in both English and Spanish. He himself spoke in Spanish. Um, There were a number of uh, Latino musicians playing before uh, his speech. So he's very much pitching himself at trying to win over Hispanic voters who are crucial uh, if the Republicans are going to regain the White House from the Democrats. Um, so two very, very interesting launches, quite similar in themes. I would say the uh, Jeb Bush one was certainly uh, a lot more exciting uh, than the Hillary Clinton one. And it was also uh, exciting insofar as he was interrupted by some hecklers and uh, he responded pretty well to them. 
He did, and it was actually the uh, off-script moment, and everyone's kind of watching to see how he performs off-script, but he handled it very, very well. So there was a number of protesters who stood up during his speech, um, and they were protesting against the deportations. Uh, President Obama has tried to introduce executive orders to block uh, deportations of about 4 million, but there are many, many more who face deportation. So this is why they were protesting. And they take issue with the fact that Jeb Bush, he does want immigration reform in some form, uh, unlike many uh, Republicans, but he has not gone so far as to say there should be a path to citizenship, which is what the Democrats are pushing for, and Hillary Clinton is very much pushing for. He's suggesting that there should be legal status. Democrats are saying that's creating a class of second-class citizens. And they stood up and said legal status is not enough. That was what was written on their T-shirts um, when they stood up, and they were escorted out of the hall. But he responded very well. He said that's why the next president is going to need to pass meaningful immigration reform, and he had a dig at Obama, not by executive order. So he handled it pretty well. But despite the fact that he was speaking about, as you say, the, uh, the idea of social mobility, and also uh, there was the fact that he was speaking in Spanish, it seemed inclusive, and he made that remark about immigration. It was nonetheless a very conservative speech in many other ways, both in terms of foreign policy, it was pretty hawkish, and then also uh, insofar as he was attempting to appeal to the religious base uh, with regard to various disputes between religious groups and the Obama administration on health care. Well, this is the challenge for Jeb Bush. Jeb Bush is, is perceived as being a moderate by Republicans, and that's mainly because of his position on immigration reform and also on education. He believes in what this common core, which is a national education curriculum. He, uh, he was quite a reformer on the education front when he was governor of Florida between 1999 and 2007, and he wants to translate that to a national level. Um, so he, he's, he's pitching himself on those issues as a moderate, but um, he is, he's regarded in Florida as being a conservative. He was the first Republican elected governor in quite some time. Uh, but other Republicans, particularly on the conservative end, on the Tea Party wing of the party, regard him as being a moderate. So he really had to stamp his conservative credentials in the speech that he gave here in Miami. Um, he pointed to uh, the defense of religious freedoms and had a go at Hillary Clinton on that, where she said, well, if religious beliefs are, are challenged by the progressive agenda, then religion needs to step aside and he had a go at her on that. Um, and he also uh, has, has, has really pitched a very aggressive foreign policy um, position. He attacked um, the Clinton, uh, Obama-Clinton foreign policy as a phone-it-in foreign policy, and uh, really quite strong on that. He's saying that um, Barack Obama and his foreign policy advisors They've been so eager to be history makers that they'd failed to be peacemakers. And he said that they've left a legacy of crisis uncontained, violence unopposed, enemies unnamed, friends undefended, and alliances unraveling. It was very, very strong. Um, and it's surprising as well because he comes with a fairly, his family comes with a fairly uh, toxic tr track record uh, in, in, in American, uh, certainly viewed by most Americans as being toxic because of his brother's war record, his decision to invade uh, Iraq in 2002. But he's not shying away from that. He's very strong on that. And that he needs to be strong on that to win over support on the rise of the Republican Party. The early states that nominate presidential candidates, Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, Nevada, they're very much made up by conservative voters. So if he's to clock any wins early in the presidential race in 
the, in the early months of next year, he really needs to score very, very well with those Conservatives, which is what he was doing in his speech. And meanwhile, uh, Hillary Clinton, who has had a, a, a reputation being perceived as a centrist Democrat, quite pally with Wall Street. She makes a lot of money making speeches to them, and she's got a lot of donors from there. Not this, you'd never guess it from her speech the other day, which sounded much more like uh, a standard left-wing Democratic speech. Well, it did, and she really is is following on from the um, really what's tested very well on this low key rollout in the last two months that she's done visiting those early nominating states: Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, Nevada. Uh, and it's a real populist message. Again, it's on the economic front. It's recognizing that people feel that they've been left behind by the economic recovery, and that the one percent um, have really benefited where everyone else hasn't. Um, she had a very very strong um, uh, attack on Wall Street which is unusual given that Wall Street was so influential in making her and her husband rich. Um, They've made tens of millions of dollars since they left the White House in 2001 um, by giving speeches. uh, And she criticized the very CEOs who were writing those checks to her and her husband. She said that prosperity just can't just be for CEOs and hedge fund managers. Democracy can't just be for billionaires and corporations. And the 5,000 or so supporters who were there on Roosevelt Island on Saturday loved that message. But it's a very different Hillary Clinton from the one that ran in 2008. She shifted far to the left. And there's a view in her campaign that if she is to emerge and skate through the primary process, she needs to swing left and she needs to be very, very progressive. Uh, to appeal to the Democratic grassroots who are so influential in picking the Democratic candidates. Also, on the left flank, she needs to watch out for Bernie Sanders. This is the Vermont senator who's described himself as a socialist. And he's um, really exciting a lot of the grassroots base with his message on uh, the money that's um, in campaign financing, that's in politics, and attacking Wall Street. Uh, So she's shifting very much to the left to try and counter what he's saying so she can have a plain plain ride through the primary election. Uh, Patty Smith, are uh, Jeb Bush and Hillary Clinton in similar positions in terms of having to appeal to the base of their parties before they go into a more uh, national uh, campaign? This is the interesting thing. In in a way, there's actually two elections going on at the moment. It's it's not a one presidential election. Hillary is running effectively against Bush already. She doesn't really have to worry a great deal about getting the nomination. And and so she can pitch uh, her message in a way that that uh, uh, attempts to erode some of 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 the the Republican uh, the Republican base. Bush, on the other hand, can't really fight her because he's concerned with the, with uh, the party to his right, which is extreme right on on, on very many issues, and uh, he 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 must fight that battle uh, on their ground. Now it it is very interesting that he uh, he has made it clear that he doesn't he doesn't intend to shift ground on immigration and on on education, which are very unpopular with the rest of his party. Uh, but having said that, he's going to have to do a lot to prove to them that he's a genuine conservative. Um, a lot of criticism come coming from uh, the far right and the many candidates who are who are already in the field uh, are going to focus on on how genuine a republican is is uh, George Bush despite despite his name 
But uh, but if, as Simon says, uh, Hillary Clinton is not leaving any room on her left within the Democratic Party, yeah. or not very much, except for Bernie Sanders, and there's nobody else much is making much of an impact, does that mean that the campaign that uh, she's going to fight uh, in the general election, if she wins the uh, Democratic nomination, is going to be uh, an economic populist message? I think that's what the polls are, are suggesting she she will do. There's no doubt about it. I take slight issue with, with, with Simon on on her uh, on her shifting dramatically to the left. Um, I think we we forget too easily that when she stood against uh, Obama, that she was actually to his left, that she was. Um, that Obama was actually really very conservative on 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 a lot of economic issues, and and that Hillary Clinton was 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 more in tune, if you like, with with um, the message of traditional uh, Democrats. But I think she will fight the main election on 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 economic issues. That's clearly what what the voters uh, expect. Uh, Simon, uh, if you look at the the rest of the uh, of the race or the rest of the pack in each case, uh, does Hillary Clinton have anybody to worry about at all? You mentioned Bernie Sanders; he's seventy three years old, he's a socialist, but he seems to be getting a certain amount of attention from the parties left. Is there anybody else who's making an impact? Not really. Um, this is why the Democrats are concerned that it will be perceived as a coronation. And, and that's also an important point in both Hillary and Jeb uh, Bush's campaigns, is what they're saying is they're taking nothing for granted. We've heard a lot of talk from both of the campaigns and themselves on that issue. It's like they're not, they're not presuming that it's a coronation. You had Jeb Bush in Miami is saying that not a one of us deserves the job by right of resume, party, seniority, family or family narrative. So he's very much saying, OK, my father was president, my brother was president, but I'm not expecting you're, I'm not expecting you to to pick me as president. I'm going to fight for it. And again, much like Jeb has has done, Hillary has cast herself as, oh, I'm going to fight for your vote. I'm not going to expect it. Um, and certainly, that sense of inevitability that was there in 2008 about her candidacy certainly isn't there this time. And there's every effort being made to show that our campaign is not taking it for granted. You're seeing lots of things being done by the campaign team. You had the chairman last week taking a, a bus from um, New York City down to Washington, D.C. In, a, a, in, a, in a, something that was very well choreographed by the campaign team, showing that they're not big spenders and they're not uh, showing themselves as being entitled. Uh, and Jed Bush was very much uh, on the same message as well. He would have been criticized before now as to whether he had the, 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 the fight in him to win the campaign and certainly uh, the campaign announcement yesterday was trying to dispel that notion and that he is willing to come out and fight for, for the votes. So the whole political dynastic element of the, the both the Clinton and Bush campaigns, they've addressed it very much. But what's interesting in the polls is that the, the dynastic issue does not seem to bother Americans. In fact, it seems to be it's better the devil you know, and that they seem to be happy to um, to look to someone who, who uh, is related to a former president. And the polls and Hillary on the Democratic side shows Hillary having a 50-point lead, almost 50-point lead, over her nearest rival, which is Bernie Sanders right now. Uh, a lot of people are watching to see if um, Vice President Joe Biden might enter the race, and he might chip away at that lead somewhat. But I still think that 
she's the clear front runner and she's really the presumed nominee on the Democratic side. It's much more different on the Republican side. There's going to be at least 15 candidates. Donald Trump is going to announce his candidacy today in New York, it's expected. Um, and at the top of the polls, really, you have a number of Republicans bunched together. There's about five or six of them uh, bunched together with Jeb Bush. You have Scott Walker, who's um, excited a lot of the conservative base. This is the Wisconsin governor who's taken on the unions in Wisconsin. He's, 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 he's excited a lot of people in the Midwest. Marco Rubio, who's also like Jeb Bush from Florida, he's, a, he's the fresh-faced Republican candidate. He's interesting in a lot of people as well, so he's one to watch. And um, you also have Rand Paul, the libertarian uh, senator from Kentucky. He's also polling quite strongly. So it's quite a bunched group at the top of the Republican poll. The issue that they have is that there's a debate coming up in early August, and they said, Fox News has said, well, we're only going to allow 10 of you on the podium, uh, so you, we have to figure out how uh, there's going to be the top 10 that are polling the best that are going to be picked. So it's going to be a very, very loud, very, very confused Republican uh, first debate and possibly well into the Republican primary. Paddy Smith? Yeah, I, I was going to say to you the, the, that um, there's a lot of interest over here, of course, in, in Martin O'Malley um, because uh, the, the former governor of, of uh, Maryland, uh, Irish strong Irish connections and associations. Um, is his candidacy seen as a, a sign of, uh, as a candidate who is maybe indicating for the future or uh, maybe that he's interested in the uh, vice presidency or is he regarded as a serious candidate? Well, the view is that he's running for presidency, maybe just not this time, um, that he's in the race with a view to, um, to, to, to forwarding his career. The difficulty for O'Malley is he's 52, he's young, he's, um, and he was term limited, so he could only serve the two terms as Maryland governor. Uh, a lot of people were surprised that he didn't run for um, a Senate seat that's going to come up in 2016 in Maryland and that he chose to throw his name into the presidential race. He, he isn't exciting uh, the Democrats as much as Bernie Sanders is, which is a surprise. I think people thought that Martin O'Malley, he's again shifting to the left, very progressive on some issues, and that they thought that uh, O'Malley would capture a lot of that interest. But Bernie Sanders has really um, eclipsed O'Malley on that. Could that um, be, Simon, could one of the reasons be that actually what Bernie Sanders appears to have is authenticity, which is one of the things that Hillary Clinton is perceived as lacking? Uh, that maybe Martin O'Malley is seen as, uh, in, as lacking it even more. Well, absolutely, and, and that's because Bernie Sanders has been saying this for years, um, and the view is, well, we haven't really heard this from Martin O'Malley for a very long period of time. We certainly haven't heard it from Hillary Clinton for a long period of time. So he's seen as the real deal. He's seen as being genuine, and that's why Sanders is, is um, attracting a lot of support. Much was made uh, in the recent weeks about how Sanders had packed out a meeting in Iowa, and people were outside looking in the window trying to catch a glimpse of Sanders. Um, I think the view from on O'Malley is, is that he's a yeah, very uh, telegenic candidate. He's he's saying all the right things, but does he really mean it? And also the the situation in Baltimore with the racial unrest and the question marks over 
the uh, zero tolerance, very aggressive police strategy that, that he took in Baltimore in the noughties, uh, whether that's a reason uh, for the current unrest in Baltimore. That's hanging over his campaign quite a bit and certainly didn't do him any favours in the run-up to his, the announcement of his campaign. And I think also it was, people were reminded of that by his decision to announce in Baltimore. So the po- he hasn't really moved in the polls. He's in low single-digit percentage points in the polls, and he, he certainly hasn't moved very much from when he announced um, a number of weeks ago. Finally, Simon, uh, it looks pretty good for Hillary Clinton as of now. It'll be difficult for anybody to catch her on the Democratic side. What about Jeb Bush? Who are the one or two that he really needs to focus on in terms of fighting for the Republican nomination? Well, I think close to home for him is Marco Rubio. Um, Marco Rubio has been very impressive in in, um, in his messaging on foreign policy. He's uh, he's a very good presenter, and he's he's really pitched a very clever campaign. He's pitched himself as the 21st century candidate and not a candidate of the past. And in one short soundbeat, that um, attacks both Jeb Bush and Hillary Clinton. And he's been saying that for some time. He came out in January with that saying, you know, it's we need new policies going forward, not policies uh, looking back to past presidencies. Uh, and, and that's clearly having a dig at Bush and Clinton. Another person to watch, and he's very popular among conservatives, is Scott Walker, as I mentioned. Uh, he's the Wisconsin governor. He, uh, his elections, he was elected three times in four years. He faced um, a recall election. He's the only governor to have ever won a recall election. And that recall election came about because of the opposition from the labor movement in Wisconsin, uh, who were upset with his attack on the trade union on collective bargaining. And um, But that's made him a favorite of the conservative of the Tea Party wing of the party. He's weak on foreign policy, um, but he's uh, generating a lot of interest in Iowa. I think he could do very, very well in, in that first state, which would uh, send him uh, further along in the race and really give him a, a good, strong chance of seeing uh, through to the very end of the convention. I also think that um, some of the other candidates, like Rand Paul, could create some interesting conversations. I don't think he has a chance, but I think he's he's got a popular uh, popularity amongst people, uh, particularly civil libertarians who are upset with the uh, phone uh, phone surveillance by the NSA. So Bush has got this, this whole plethora of people he has to really watch out for coming on different policy issues. And I think in particular on the conservative side of things, the fact that he mentioned those issues religious freedoms, was very strong on foreign policy in in his uh, campaign speech, shows that he's very conscious of um, rivals moving up that right flank. Simon Carswell, thank you. You're listening to Worldview from the Irish Times with me, Dennis Staunton. It emerged this week that the Louvre Museum in Paris and a number of other French cultural institutions refused to accept a booking from a group of art history students from Tel Aviv University. The circumstances are disputed, but the incident is being reported in Israel as the latest manifestation of a growing boycott against Israel in protest against its occupation of the Palestinian territories. Israeli politicians have identified the Boycott, Divestment and Sanctions Movement, or BDS, as a growing threat, and Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu this week compared it to Nazi propaganda against the Jews. The attacks on the Jews were always preceded by the slander of the Jews. What was done to the Jewish people then is being done to the Jewish state now, he said, after a meeting with the Polish foreign minister. So how dangerous is the boycott movement to the status quo in Israel and Palestine? And is Mr Netanyahu's government going the right way about countering it? 
To discuss this, I'm joined from Jerusalem by our correspondent Mark Weiss and here in studio by our foreign affairs correspondent Ruan McCormick and foreign policy editor Patrick Smith, who's still with us. Mark Weiss, can you tell us first perhaps why is BDS and the boycott movement such big news in Israel right now? Well, the boycott movement is nothing new. It's been around for a decade or so, um, in, in managing to make impact in certain areas more than others. Uh, the academic boycott, for instance, has gained a lot of momentum over recent years, as has the um, cultural boycott with, with uh, quite a few uh, number of prominent artists' uh, cancelling concerts that were scheduled to take place in Israel. However, the wider economic boycott uh, to date has not made a significant impact, certainly not on the Israeli economy. However, the very fact that the boycott movement exists is certainly worrying to uh, certainly the Israeli leadership. And what we had a couple of weeks ago uh, was uh, a coincidence, I think, when we had three separate elements of the boycott um, campaign all coming together um, and rather uh, making an impact on the Israeli headlines day after day. We had, first of all, uh, the National Union of Students uh, in Britain um, passing a motion in, in support of the boycott, divestment and sanctions movement. And at the same time, we had uh, a move by the Palestinian Football Association to uh, ban Israel from uh, football's world uh, governing body, FIFA. This would, of course, had a very, would have had a very significant impact on day-to-day life in Israel if, if the Israeli national side could not compete in the UEFA competition and the World Cup. Um, at the last minute, the Palestinian delegation was persuaded by FIFA officials uh, to drop the, the motion calling for uh, suspension of Israel, and a committee was set up to, in, uh, to look into um, Palestinian, uh, certain Palestinian allegations. Um, so we had those two, and the third element we had, coincidentally, at the same time, was a more significant uh, problem as far as Israel concerned, when the uh, CEO of the Orange uh, cell phone company uh, made a declaration during a press conference in Cairo that he would like uh, to end uh, the operations of his Orange company in Israel immediately. And the only thing that prevented him from doing so uh, was um, contractual obligations between his orange company and the Israeli partner company that operates orange here in Israel. This sent shockwaves through the Israeli establishment. They thought that if indeed orange pulls out, it will um, open the way for other large companies uh, to stop trading with Israel. In the end, that also didn't happen. Within a week, the CEO had backtracked on his comments and came to Israel just a few days ago and met with the prime minister. He claimed his comments uh, were misunderstood, had been misunderstood and he pledged that Orange will continue its operations in Israel. So in what one week, we had all these different elements of the boycott, all making headlines. And I think um, sending the message to Israelis, many Israelis for the first time, that this is really a serious issue. You, Mark, identified a few different types of boycotts there. And obviously, there, you know, sometimes we're talking about uh, the BDS campaign, the boycott divestments and, and sanctions campaign proper, some of which is quite hardline and involves boycotting uh, activities in Israel itself. In other times, you're talking about something like, for example, the European Union's plan to label products that are coming from the Israeli settlements in the West Bank. And then there are various other kinds of soft boycotts. Do the 
Israeli public or do the Israeli politicians distinguish between these different kinds of boycott activity? Well, some do and some don't. Um, and it is a very important distinction. You must remember that um, uh, many Israelis are also opposed to uh, certain policies uh, by uh, the right-wing government and Israel's continuing rule over the West Bank. Uh, and many Israelis also boycott products from the West Bank. We will have, for instance, uh, Israelis who vote for the left-wing Merits Party who will not buy uh, wine uh, on the supermarket shelves that is made in uh, West Bank settlements or will not buy vegetables um, that were made in West Bank settlements. So uh, some Israelis indeed would support uh, a boycott that is limited to um, the West Bank products. Um, however, um, the Israeli the Prime Minister Netanyahu stressed and the Israeli uh, leading politicians have stressed that the boycott movement, the BDS movement, is, is something much wider and something much more sinister from um, Israel's point of view. The BDS movement does not uh, limit itself to uh, a boycott of uh, Israeli produce from the West Bank or Israeli companies operating in the West Bank. And they do not even support uh, the two-state solution. Uh, the BDS official policy is, uh, sees Israel as a whole as illegitimate and wants to boycott anything and everything to do with Israel, replacing Israel with a, a, a Palestinian state. Um, so there is that distinction to be made. And the Israeli leadership certainly uh, is trying to portray to the Israeli public, send a message across that the boycott movement as a whole is anti-Semitic. It singles out Israel for special treatment. Uh, and the Israeli leadership uh, does not uh, speci specify um, uh, the campaign against the West Bank and the occupation, um, believing that um, the boycott movement as a whole is much more sinister and much more uh, anti-Israel as a whole. Yeah, I, but I wonder, though, I mean, first of all, I think it's true to say that even in the BDS movement proper, there is a certain amount, there's a spectrum of opinion within it. And as I understand it, some of these issues about boycotting products or boycotting activities, they're judged on a case-by-case -case basis. Now, that's, uh, uh, the process by which they're judged is open to some sort of question and criticism. But I don't think it's necessarily the case that there's uh, that the BDS BDS movement as a whole has a blanket policy of uh, boycotting everything to do with Israel. But just to go back to what you were saying about this distinction, uh, Mark, and as you say, it's absolutely right. I was there in Israel last week, and many of the people I met in Israel in Tel Aviv would choose not to buy products from the uh, settlements in the West Bank. But what the uh, Prime Minister appears to be saying with regard to all of this is that this is not a politically motivated campaign, but that it is essentially an anti-Semitic campaign. Do you think that that's a view that uh, resonates with many Israelis? I think it does. I think many Israelis would uh, support uh, the Prime Minister's uh, interpretation of this. Uh, and even the fact that, um, as you mentioned earlier in the introduction, that um, he likened it to certain um, um, campaigns by, uh, carried out by the Nazi Party in Germany. Um, there was the, the, the slogan of Daub on Jewish stores in Germany, Kauf nicht bei Juden, don't buy from Jews. And we see now that the campaign is, uh, on, for much of the BDS movement, is don't buy Israeli products. Um, obviously, many Israelis will make, would, link, would make a link between those two things. Um, 
And of course, Israel feels increasingly isolated within the international community. And when that happens, there tends to be a retrenchment of people um, sticking together, believing uh, that the world is against Israel. And uh, it is nothing more than a, a modern interpretation of classical anti-Semitism. Paddy Smith, isn't that a, a, a reasonable feeling on behalf of many Israelis and indeed many Jews, given the history of uh, the boycott in Jewish experience, that, uh, and not, not only during the Nazi era, era but also before and elsewhere, that, uh, that this, as an instrument, is a particularly sensitive one where Jews are concerned and Israelis are concerned? Well, whether one agrees with it or not, uh, it is understandable, but I, I would have to say that this is the classic Israeli defense virtually on all political pressure uh, against uh, Israel. All propaganda against the Israeli state or against the actions of their governments are met by this uh, insistence that actually what is happening is not political but an anti-Semitic uh, opposition to, to Israel. So it, it's as, as one, if you like, with all of the... Uh, Israeli government's propaganda um, internationally. And it has its effect. I mean, the Germans particularly, for example, are deeply sensitive to the charge that, that um, they're being anti-Semitic because of, of their history. And it certainly has had an effect in the past uh, in, in the US. But it, 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 one has to wonder whether it is still as strong an effect. as there, there is clearly more people willing, certainly in the US, certainly in, in Britain, to challenge the, the line of the Israeli government, to see the, the propaganda as being specifically uh, Netanyahu propaganda, uh, rather than, than uh, you know, instinctively being, coming from the, the, the state of Israel, if you like. Uh, this uh, uh, whole pro the BDS uh, movement, in a sense, is part of an internationalization of this conflict on behalf of the Palestinians. In that, uh, various, uh, as indeed uh, some Israeli politicians were saying last week, they couldn't uh, uh, achieve their aims through violence, and they couldn't achieve it through diplomacy. So now they're using this uh, particular method. Uh, is this uh, internationalization likely to be an effective instrument for the Palestinians? Do you think? I, um, you can't say that it would be decisive, but you can certainly say it, it may have, have an effect. And it, the, the problem is that it involves a, pol a political struggle uh, within Palestinian support organizations and pal the Palestinian community abroad. It's not, it's not clear cut. There are quite prominent figures, for example, like um, Chomsky, who has come out publicly and said that he doesn't support BDS. He supports uh, sanctions uh, and, and, and the labeling campaign against the occupied territories. But he says to, to say that, that all Israeli products should be boycotted is, is counterproductive. And, and if, you, if you take that line, then you should be boycotting uh, the US. You shouldn't be. So it, it is, it's, it's a difficult campaign uh, for them to make um, very um, uh, strong gains on. And I, I, I'm not convinced that it is going to be terribly effective. Uh, Ruan McCormick, uh, where uh, the European Union is concerned, the approach uh, has been, it seems, a kind of a, a zigzag approach in the sense that, uh, uh, that uh, there has been for quite a long time talk about some kind of sanctions against the settlements in the West Bank, and particularly with regard to labelling of products. Where do we find ourselves with regard to those moves? 
Well, as you said, it's important to distinguish between BDS and acknowledging the internal differences within the BDS uh, movement and the calls for labelling of goods from the West Bank. So you have the BDS movement um, and there are internal varieties within that movement. You also have the associated effort at initiating some sort of an academic or cultural boycott of Israel. um, And that's attracted the support of various uh, well-known public intellectuals and and cultural figures. Um, You also then have occasional calls within a, a number of EU states for a halting of the of arms exports to Israel, for example. And so you saw a lot more of that in Spain, notably, and in the UK after the Gaza war last summer. Um, but the important point is that the EU, its policy position is to oppo- oppose uh, the boycotting of goods from Israel. Um, it draws a distinction between the state of Israel, with which it wants good relations, with which it trades um, uh, in very large numbers, um, and those areas uh, east of the Green Line. Um, and it says, you know, when we're dealing with states east, east of the Green Line, different rules apply. Um, and so, for example, we saw this with that um, agreement on scientific uh, exchanges and funding last year, where the EU said, uh, if we're to sign this agreement with Israel, then the funding will not be provided to uh, institutions and, and, and won't apply to products originating uh, on that side of the Green Line. So the University of Ariel, for example, which is located in an Israeli settlement, was not included. The Israelis opposed this, but eventually accepted it um, because um, Israeli universities and Israeli academia relies um, quite significantly on, on, on funding from Europe. Um, There have been attempts made um, many times over the last number of years, as you say, to introduce a a uniform set of guidelines uh, for labelling of goods from from the West Bank. European states can do it themselves. Uh, Some do. Um, But you're seeing sort of a move in the last number of months towards uh, putting pressure on the EU to introduce guidelines that would apply to everybody. So in March, there was a letter sent by uh, 15 EU foreign ministers, including Charlie Flanagan of Ireland, calling on Federica Mogherini, the EU's foreign affairs chief, to um, to reignite this process. They began the process of drafting guidelines in 2012, but uh, it, it fell away and they weren't introduced. There's a, a, a renewed movement uh, towards doing that. I think it's not a, an accident that it was renewed immediately after the Israeli election when Benjamin Netanyahu, in the closing stages of that campaign, had said that he uh, he was he had gone cold on the idea of a two-state solution, that he, he didn't agree with the idea of a two-state solution. Um, so that's, that's where we are. But in terms of just uh, broader diplomatic activity, as you say, uh, once uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu said, uh, made those remarks about the two-state solution uh, during the campaign, even though he sort of attempted to walk back from them later, uh, there was, it appears, to have been a certain feeling in the West uh, that, uh, that really there's nothing much that they're going to do, the two parties, without some external prodding. And the next move, the next big move appears to be in New York at uh, the United Nations in September when the French have got uh, a, a proposal, a resolution. What exactly are the French proposing here? That's right. There's been a clear trend um, towards the recognition of uh, recognition of the Palestinian state uh, over the last year, 18 months. Um, 
this accelerated, this this trend accelerated, I suppose, after the Gaza war, uh, and uh, was a general sense that there is no peace process to speak of at the moment. Um, Eastern European states had recognised a Palestinian state before they joined the EU in 2004, but Sweden uh, last year became the first Western European state to recognise the the Palestinian state, and Israel responded by withdrawing its ambassador from Stockholm. Um, You've had non-binding parliamentary votes in Britain, uh, in Spain, uh, in France and also in Ireland, where the coalition government didn't didn't oppose the resolution, um, the Vatican has done the same. And Federica Mogherini has said that it's her hope that within her five-year term um, we will see a, a Palestinian state. So, as you say, the next big diplomatic set piece is the tabling in September. It's expected in September of this French resolution, which would uh, which would involve the the UN recognizing a Palestinian state and the setting of of a timetable for the conclusion of negotiations on a long-term durable settlement between Israel and the Palestinians. Um, The the US, of course, may use its veto, or it may not, and a lot of analysts have detected a shift in rhetoric from Washington since the uh, Israeli election. Immediately after the election, Barack Obama said that uh, Israel couldn't necessarily rely in all cases on the US using its veto. So there is some possibility, perhaps depending on what the text of the resolution says, that the US might not use the, the veto. But it may. And the question then is, well, what does France do? France is tabling the um, the resolution under Laurent Fabius, the foreign minister. What does France do? Does France then recognise the Palestinian state? And if it does, what sort of knock-on effects might that have? Clearly, it would be uh, an upping of the ante for France um, to recognise a Palestinian state. And what would probably happen if France did it would be that a number of other European states would would follow suit. Mark Weiss, uh, this uh, isolation uh, that you've been describing and that we've been describing, this feeling of isolation in Israel, what's the political impact there insofar as uh, does it get just get people's backs up or is it the kind of pressure that might lead to some kind of change of approach on the part of the government? Well, it's always been said, and I think there's a lot of truth to this, that you cannot uh, impose a settlement from outside. Uh, that's self, uh, self-evident. Um, the only way, and the Israeli leaders, leaders from left and right, I think, would be uh, the broad consensus on this, that the only way uh, we're going to get uh, Palestinian statehood and a two-state solution, uh, a lasting peace agreement in this region, is through uh, direct bilateral negotiations, maybe with some uh, help from outside, but certainly not um, the international community uh, um, passing unilateral resolutions that are are not um, approved by Israel, setting deadlines, and uh, uh, you cannot force the sides to negotiate in any meaningful way and and make the very painful compromises on both sides that are needed. So uh, many Israelis see these attempts, Um, for instance, um, the recognition of Palestinian statehood or or UN uh, Security Council uh, uh, resolutions uh, uh, committing to to deadlines, etc., as uh, outside interference uh, not really in check with reality. Um, Now, I'm not apportioning blame here. I know there are many people in the international community who believe that uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu was never genuinely in favor of um, 
the two-state solution and handing back parts of the West Bank, etc. There are others, particularly here in Israel, who believe that uh, Mahmoud Abbas, the Palestinian president, is uh, is not the figure who can deliver a deal. Um, um, but those questions on the side. Um, to answer your question, yes, uh, in a sense, unfortunately, it does only uh, increase uh, the feeling of isolation, the feeling of many Israelis that the world is uh, against Israel, uh, and this um, may not bring Palestinian statehood closer. It may make uh, the Israeli uh, electorate um, more right-wing uh, and more reluctant um, to back parties believe uh, in territorial compromise and uh, engaging in meaningful negotiations. In terms of the Israeli international response or a diplomatic response to all of this, uh, I, I noticed that uh, the American billionaire Sheldon Adelson is setting up this big fund uh, to try to counter the P- BDS movement on campuses in the United States. And there seems to be a pretty hardline response on the part of of both uh, the Israeli government and many of its supporters abroad. Is that, do you think, the best approach or might a more differentiated approach be more effective, Mark? Um, Well, one of the key uh, elements in uh, Israel's uh, efforts to thwart the BDS movement is actually, uh, at the moment, via the U.S. Congress. Um, the U.S. and the European Union are in the midst of negotiating a very important uh, free trade pact that uh, will probably uh, uh, be implemented next year. What Israel has done, using its friends uh, in Congress and the uh, pro-Israel lobby, uh, uh, both the Senate and the House of Representatives over the last few days have passed uh, motions that would link, um, put a clause in this free trade pact that... uh, uh, that would implement, um, ensure that the free trade pact would include punitive measures against European companies that support the boycott. Um, so that's a very concrete, uh, practical uh, way that Israel is uh, mobilizing its supporters in the U.S. to thwart uh, the BDS movement. Um, other than that, um, Israel will continue to argue um, that these measures, um, particularly the boycott or the labeling of West Bank products or the boycott of West Bank products, will actually harm um, the local Palestinian uh, workforce in the West Bank who are reliant on those uh, Israeli companies or settlement or factories and settlements for jobs. And uh, as much as it would harm the Israeli economy, it would foremost, uh, first and foremost, harm the uh, Palestinian workforce in the West Bank. Um, so Israel is both uh, continuing to argue against it and, uh, as I said, uh, um, taking practical measures in the U.S. that will uh, dissuade European companies uh, to support boycott measures. Uh, Patty Smith, uh, this uh, uh, element of the trade deal that Mark was mentioning, that Congress has put into the uh, trade authorization for President Obama, uh, that's one of just a number of uh, of moments where it seems that Israel's friends in the U.S. are uh, are being perhaps more effective. Uh, campaigners uh, for Israeli interests than the government itself. Well, it is it is remarkable, actually, how proxy Israeli diplomacy functions in in America in a, in a way perhaps that no other country can do it. And there was a, there was a, for example there was a very interesting court case uh, resolved in the in the Supreme Court uh, just the other day in which um, a uh, an Israeli uh, American who had a child born in Jerusalem wanted the child's. Um, 
birthplace registered as as Israel, and um, Congress uh, believes that this would be perfectly okay because it recognizes uh, Jerusalem as the um, capital of, of, of Israel. Uh, the president, however, has has uh, said that this is his prerogative and foreign policy, conducting foreign policies, his prerogative. And uh, it, the whole thing ended up in a row in, in the Supreme Court, which, which went, as it happened this time, with the president. And it was a setback, I suppose, to, to Israeli foreign policy interests in, 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 in America. It's now the position you can't have uh, Israel on your passport if you were born on in in, in Jerusalem, uh, but the but the other issue of the the trade deal is it's very interesting because I I think I suspect uh, Obama's having a lot of difficulty getting this through Congress anyway, uh, and and I suspect uh, the uh, European negotiators would have even more difficulty getting it through the European Parliament if there was a clause in it which which basically pro- prohibited uh, the, uh, the 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 labelling campaign which. The European Union um, is is initiating uh, that the the um, uh, European Parliament the MEPs would would resist very strenuously any time attempt by the Israeli lobby in America to tie its hand. Everyone, just as an aside, I did speak to a number of European officials about that about the addition of these um, clauses to the the TTIP mandate in Washington. And they did seem quite relaxed about it, actually, because the text of the amendments was to the effect that we discourage the actions, economic actions taken against the state of Israel, that we made it, make it a principal negotiating objective of the US side to discourage such actions. But they felt that given that we're we're only talking about labelling A and B, that uh, that we're talking about the, that the amendment looks for uh, the US administration to discourage such actions rather than to prohibit them as part of the deal. I think the Europeans were relatively relaxed about it. Uh, they may be wrong on that because uh, if you look at uh, at the definitions within the uh, the language in Congress, I think it possibly might cause cause the Europeans more trouble than they're saying. In any case, Ron McCormack, Mark Weiss, and Paddy Smith, thank you very much. And that's all from this edition of Worldview. You can find more on all our stories at IrishTimes.com. But from producer Declan Conlon, sound engineer Gary White, and from me, Dennis Staunton, goodbye.